0: In this season of Advent, we continue the sermon series through the first three chapters of Genesis. Advent is indeed a season of darkness in which we long for the light, Jesus Christ, of whom we read, even in this passage, a very dark and tragic passage of God's Word which speaks to us about us and our condition in and of ourselves. The reading comes, picking up from where we left off last Lord's Day, now in chapter 3 at verse 8. This is God's holy, divinely inspired, inerrant word. Let us humble ourselves before the King to hear His voice speaking by His Spirit In Scripture, let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, how we love you that you have not, because you've not left us to ourselves. You are our great rescuer and redeemer and our sustainer. We thank you for the truth of your holy word. We pray that by the grace and power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our minds and give us spiritual wisdom and insight. Open our hearts. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would convict and humble the proud and raise up the lowly and show forth yourself as our great Savior, in whom alone we trust through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Holy Word of God, it is written. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Last Sunday, Pastor Jonathan preached a powerful sermon highlighting, among other points, the way in which Satan, through the serpent in the garden, worked his evil strategy to deceive the woman and thereby to bring about the downfall of the man with the ultimate result of wreaking havoc in God's very good creation. Now, all of Satan's deceitful schemes were aimed at this one goal, man's traitorous rebellion against the Creator. Man's reaching out See it, reaching out and grasping equality with God. So, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, the man with whom God had made his covenant the man to whom God had directly given the command not to eat of that fruit, the man whom God had placed in the garden to work it and to guard it, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. This has to do with much, much more than physical nakedness. Before they had sinned, They had obviously seen their own and each other's physical nakedness. That is not the issue. But when they sinned and their eyes were opened, they saw, they realized the exposure of their own guilt and shame. They immediately realized in the words of the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 4, that they were, quote, naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now the fact that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths does not imply, does not mean that there is something inherently shameful or sinful about the sexual anatomy or that there is something inherently or shameful about sexuality that cannot possibly be the case because as we know from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 God very intentionally created humanity male and female and brought them together for the divinely ordained purpose of procreation. So the fig leaf loincloths cannot be about the shamefulness of sexuality or the sexual anatomy. But at the same time, it is true that the sexual anatomy represents deep personal intimacy, Intimate knowledge of one's own and one another's deepest personhood. You know, as we say, it's personal. Now, that's how God designed us in His very good creation before sin entered the world. And so before they sinned, the man and the woman, you remember, at the end of chapter 2, were both naked and were not ashamed. Because there was no sin in them. There was no sin at the deepest level of their inmost being, their personhood. There was no sin in that. And so that which expressed their most intimate Knowledge of themselves and of each other wasn't tainted by sin, and so they were naked but not ashamed. But after Adam's sin, the man and the woman had a deep, personal, intimate sense, knowledge of their own and each other's sin in the depths of their personhood. And so they sought to cover up this sense of internal shame and guilt by covering up the most intimate personal expression of their personhood. In other words, they weren't simply covering up their bodies. They were trying to cover up their souls They did their best, their best, (laughs) they did their best to deny their guilt, dismiss their shame, cover up the fact that they had sinned. Maybe if they could just hide it, cover it up, it would go away. Let's pretend like it never happened. It happens all the time, doesn't it? That's the reason we call it a... Come on, cover up. (laughs) The shadow of sin, guilt, and shame had, has fallen upon God's very good creation. Paradise lost. As Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now consider how the tragedy in the garden continues to unfold. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That half of the verse should bring to mind a beautiful scene accompanied by really wonderful feelings. It implies that the man and the woman were familiar with the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. It implies that the man and the woman had enjoyed, enjoyed Many occasions on which they had walked and talked with the Lord God in the garden, enjoying His companionship without fear as part of their ordinary daily life. The man and the woman had been experiencing truly, literally, heaven on earth. The Garden of Eden, remember, was the earthly sanctuary, the holy place where the Lord God met with, dwelt with, walked with his people, his human image bearers in peaceful communion. But not now and no longer. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What a pitiful, tragic, and really rather ridiculous scene. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. (laughs) Really? You gotta be kidding. They hid themselves. From the infinite, eternal, omniscient, that is, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere-present, sovereign creator of the heavens and earth? Really? Children, would, would the children please stand up right where you are? Children, I need your help. Please stand up right where you are. Please stand up, children. We've got to teach these grown-ups something. Ready? Catechism, where is God? Everywhere! Can you see God? Nobody. always sees me. That's right. I cannot see God, but God always sees me. Thank you, and you may be seated. Now, Everyone, where are you? Are you trying to hide from the Lord God? They hid themselves among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man. Now notice that the Lord God first called the man to account. The man was charged with the responsibility to work and guard the garden. The man was the one with whom the Lord God made His covenant requiring the man's obedience. The man was to lead the woman in accordance with God's Word. The silly cartoons that blame the woman get it all wrong. The responsibility lay upon the man. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? (laughs) Did the infinite, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth really not know where the man was? Of course he knew. The Lord God did not ask, Where are you? for his own information, he called to the man, where are you? For the sake of the man's salvation, yes. To be sure, yes, this was a call to judgment. And there would be judgment rendered as we shall see, but this call to judgment was also a call to redemption. Where are you? The issue was not the man's physical location, but his spiritual condition. The Lord God called out to the man, where are you? And that, dear friends, was a call to repentance, a call to come out of hiding, out of darkness, a call to come out of the denial of guilt and shame, a call to come out of estrangement and alienation. It was a call to honesty, to confession. There would be dreadful judgment and cursed consequences, yes, yes. There were and there are, but ultimately, as we shall see, this call was a call to redemption. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, when the Lord God calls out to you saying, where are you? How do you respond? Yes, this is a terrifying scene and we should all tremble with fear before the Lord God of righteous judgment. But at the same time, this passage reveals that the God of righteous judgment is the God who seeks and saves the lost. Do you see here, even in this tragic scene, A scene shrouded in darkness. Do you see the light of the gospel? Do you see a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you see even a foreshadowing of Christmas, in a way? Of the first advent, the first coming of the Redeemer into this fallen world? Do you see here portrayed before your very eyes? The way in which the sovereign creator, the judge, takes the initiative and goes to find the man who has broken the fellowship and run away to hide. There is man. There we are, the dead sinner, pitifully attempting to hide, already perishing in his sin, dead, cut off from the source of all life and all happiness by His own sinful deed of His own free will, now excommunicated from the blessed communion with God He had previously enjoyed. But the Lord God does not leave him where he is in hiding. And the Lord God does not leave him as he is in his helpless and hopeless condition. The Lord God takes the initiative and comes to seek and to find the man. This is the gospel. Yes, there will be judgment and dreadful curses as we shall see, but ultimately there will be redemption. So please get this point. Think about it. Please get this point. If, if the infinite, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign creator of heaven and earth had not taken the initiative, if the Lord God had not called the man out of his hiding place, If the Lord God had not confronted the man with his sin, there would have never, ever been even a possibility of reconciliation and the restoration of the relationship between God and humanity. If the Lord God had not confronted the man with his sin, there would not have ever been any possibility of reconciliation and the restoration of the relationship between God and humanity. If God had done nothing, the man and the woman would have perished eternally in their sin. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of Christmas. Jesus came into this fallen world to seek and to save the lost, to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light, to call us out of hiding and to bring us home to his father's house so that we might dwell with him and he with us forever. Where are you? Where are you? It's not about physical location, but spiritual condition. It's a question intended to call us to face the reality of who and what we are as sinners. So, yes, it is a call of judgment, but ultimately it is intended to be a call of redemption. Come to me, says Jesus, and I will give you rest. But watch how the man responds to the Lord's call. Let's just see if perhaps this sounds somewhat familiar. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. (laughs) The man was actually incriminating himself without intending to do so. I mean, he he, he wasn't confessing any sin, (laughs) but everything he said, I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid, implies his sin and guilt, but he just doesn't want to spit it out. He just can't bring himself to admit it. There's no specific confession. There's no humble plea for mercy. There's no desperate begging for forgiveness. Really, it's almost as though he's giving an understandable explanation for his behavior. I heard you. Uh, I, I was naked. I was afraid, so I hid. Isn't that what any reasonable man would do? That won't do. That will not do. The man is really trying to avoid the issue, isn't he? Maybe you know how that is. So then comes the follow up question to pin the man down. Hmm. Interesting. So, who told you that you were naked? Now the man is trapped. You know what this is like? Uh, You've seen it in other people, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) He's guilty and he's caught. But he just can't confess his sin. He just can't bring himself to say it. It's hard to confess specific sins, isn't it? It's hard to confess particular sins particularly, isn't it? It's hard to spit it out fully, clearly, cleanly, without saying, uh, uh, "But what well, if uh, woulda, coulda, shoulda?" Uh, uh, well, yeah, but you ever heard that? Well, yeah, but if. Uh, That won't do. It will not do. We have inherited that trait from Adam. And the only thing it does is dig the hole deeper. So the next question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, you know that the infinite, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth, before whose eyes all are naked and exposed, was not asking this question for his own information. He was asking it in order to get conviction and confession. Come on, man. Come clean. Come on, come clean. Watch what happens. Look and see what this first man, this glorious man, created in the image of God, to enjoy communion with God, to exercise dominion over God's creation. As God's visible representative for the glory of God, look at this earthly king and see what he has become a whining, sniveling, shriveling, cringing, blame shifting rebel. And now that the man knows that there is no escape, he seeks to justify himself. He seeks to justify himself, underline it, he seeks to justify himself by blaming the woman. Make no mistake now, this is all about self-justification, self-righteousness. That's what's at stake here. Adam wants to stand on his own before God. Without forgiveness. It's about self justification, self righteousness, and the way to get there is blame shifting. It is at the core of our sinful nature, and it is rooted in the satanic pride which plagues fallen humanity. It was the woman. It's not my fault. It's all her fault. Don't look at me. She did it first. And as if that were not enough, the man shifted the blame one more turn. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The woman whom you gave to be with me. is your fault that I did what I did. You gave the woman to be with me and she was a really bad influence on me. It's not my fault. It's my circumstances which you created. It's my environment which, which made it much more difficult for me. If I had been left to myself, if you'd just left me alone in the garden, It never would have happened. Don't look at me, God. It's your fault. Sound familiar? Anybody been there? Done that? We just can't bear to bear personal responsibility for our sins, can we? Blame shifting. We inherited it from our fallen first father, Adam. It's a way that we try to hide our own sin and guilt and stand in our own righteousness before the one before whose eyes we are naked and exposed. As the scripture says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so, therefore, Satan's deceptions continue to control us and bind us in his power. How do you think Adam's little temper tantrum affected his now already broken relationship with his wife who heard that pitiful tirade. You might have some idea about that. (laughs) You see, already the curse of sin is beginning to have its effect. Death is at work. The man and the woman are at odds with God and they are at odds with each other. Paradise lost. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Notice again, the woman offers no confession of sin. She does not beg for mercy or ask for forgiveness. She does not acknowledge any real personal personal responsibility in the matter. She gives an explanation with an excuse, shifting the blame to the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. I wouldn't have done it if, I wouldn't have done it, but that won't do. You see, the Lord God isn't really interested in our explanations and our excuses. Maybe I should repeat that. The Lord God really isn't interested in our explanations and our excuses. He already knows everything about what we have done and why. In fact, he knows these things much, much better than we do. All our sins deserve his wrath and curse and the wages of sin is death. So how are helpless and hopeless sinners, guilty without excuse, how are we to be saved? How can the righteous judge save sinners from his own righteous judgment? Brothers and sisters, that's what Christmas is all about. How can the righteous judge save sinners from his own righteous judgment? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Christmas, the gospel of the first advent. Christ Jesus, who though He was in very nature God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Christ Jesus, who though He was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped you see it his coming into this fallen world was the beginning of the undoing of Adam's grasping for equality with God he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped even though equality with God was rightfully his But he became a humble servant, born in the likeness of men, one of us, yet without sin. The new Adam, the true Adam, the second Adam, the sinless Adam, the perfectly obedient Adam. Why? To redeem us from the curse of the first Adam by suffering the punishment of death upon a cursed cross in our stead. The righteous judge executed his own righteous judgment upon himself. The righteous judge executed his righteous judgment upon himself. That's how helpless, hopeless sinners without excuse are saved. All those who look to Christ for their salvation all those who abandon their own righteousness, all those who come to Him naked and exposed in repentance and faith, will be clothed in His royal, righteous robe. Where are you? To God be the glory, Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the glorious Gospel of Your Son, Jesus Christ and we pray that by the power of Your Spirit, You would deeply implant and root Your Word in our hearts and souls to renew our minds and to transform our lives that we might live as the truly new people in Jesus Christ. To the glory of your name. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. So we say together the ancient ecumenical creed, the Nicene Creed, which emphasizes the divine nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians, in whom do you believe? who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins